even though stocks have crashed, it's not dented their enthusiasm. The Fed, you know, coming in and lending them more money, what's that going to do? We're getting close to that time where it's time to shoot them in the back. Right before stocks crashed, we saw unprecedented call buying by retail traders. There's going to be a major backlash um, towards policies that, that you know, uh, protect the wealthy. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? from markets to mortgages, from policy to politics, and everything in between. Please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The first in part two of the 2020 Humanar series, and the 12th overall, featured my buddy Jesse Felder, a man for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect and whose thoughts and analysis I devour every chance I get. Jesse is the author of the eponymous Felder Report and the host of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom, a superb podcast. He has a tremendous knack for picking the world apart, analyzing data and drilling down to find out what it means, and importantly, how to use that knowledge to improve investment returns. So please welcome my friend, Jesse Felder. Great, how are you? I'm terrific, how are you doing? I, I'm, I'm doing great, you're looking, you're looking really well. It's kind of sickening actually. Well, no, not at all. I've, I've totally given up on any kind of grooming. Uh, I didn't actually realize we were doing video until I got the Zoom link and I went, oh, shoot, it's Zoom. <laughs> we're going to have a video. I'm used to the podcast. I've got a face for podcasting, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good that you actually ran out and stuck the, uh, stuck the lumberjack outfit on just, just to complete the ensemble. I'm loving it. Well, look, um, I mean, mate, there's so much to talk about. I mean, there always is whenever we get a chance to chat. Um, and it's really tough to kind of figure out where to start, given what's going on. But, but I think the place I most want to start, because it's the thing that, you know, is, is really causing me to sit and spend a lot of time thinking about it, is, is just this disconnect between data and markets. And, and you know, I've spoken about it and you've spoken about it, this, 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 this polarization everywhere we look in every aspect of our lives. But right now, the thing that I'm really focused on is the polarization between what seems to be reality and you know the hope and the expectation that, that the past will project into the future in terms of markets. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people have, have come to the conclusion that the stock market's not the economy, and you know, there's there's um, different driving factors there. Generally, you know, I, I think the way I like to think about the market is go back to you know Ben Graham, and you know, he called you know said in the in the short run. Stock market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. So in the short run, you know, it's it's you know how are traders placing placing their bets? How, how are people feeling about markets? We had uh, really an unprecedented crash in March where we had you know the quickest correction, 10, 20, 30 percent drop from all time highs. 
Um, and now we've had, you know, this, this amazing rebound. I think it's driven by, to me, two factors. The rebound one, uh, I think you have a lot of these, I mean, these strategies that we've seen now for, you know, 10 years that have just grown, grown more and more important yeah. to the markets where it's, uh, you know, just price insensitive buying. So whether it's volatility targeting and because the VIX is falling, they're now buying or CTAs or, you know, even the Fed, you could say is a price insensitive buyer, you know, just buys regardless. Um, you know, a lot of these things are conspiring to push prices higher. But I think there's something something uh, different too that we really haven't seen until this year in the markets, which is this kind of euphoric sentiment among retail traders. And a lot of people have said, you can't have, uh, you know, an end of this stock market boom until you get retail involved. That's exactly yeah. what we saw earlier this year, we've seen, you know, like since free trading, essentially, you know, Robinhood kind of created it, but, you know, Schwab went to free trading, E-Trade, Ameritrade, I went to free trading last year, and we've seen this huge surge in interest among retail traders. Um, Jason Gepford's done some some great work, yeah. uh, you know, kind of putting up data that kind of validate the, this thesis. Showing that, you know, the darts, uh, you know, volume daily active revenue trades at E-Trade and Ameritrade are just off the charts. It's, yeah. you know, it's over almost almost 4 million, I think now up from 1 million, I think it was kind of the highest we ever saw. Um, but to me, the thing that stands out the most uh, that Jason's kind of put out is around mid-February, right before stocks crashed, we saw unprecedented call buying by retail, um, retail traders who literally never, you know, traded before in their lives. They discover what call options are. I think you right. had a, a great piece about, you know, yeah. you look on YouTube and just the, the, the tutorials, how to buy call options on Tesla or whatever. It was, became so big this year uh, that we saw a huge surge in February right before stocks crashed. But last week, we just saw the, the amount of call buying by retail traders take out that February high. So even though stocks have crashed, it's not dented their enthusiasm for trading at all. If anything, the lockdown has forced a lot of people to say, well, yeah. look, I can't go do what I want. I can't go to work. I can't, you know, I, there's no sports on. I'm going to play the stock market. And I'm going to do it through call options and leverage ETFs and all this stuff. So, you know, that's that's something that's different that's going on right now that I that we haven't seen during this, I think, the, the course of this entire bull market. Yeah, you, when, you, when you look at this, uh, and I, I've seen those charts, and Jason's done some phenomenal work on this stuff. And you kind of start thinking to yourself, you, know, you go through that kind of denial that this can actually happen and, and, and the fact that it could it work. And then you, I find myself sitting down thinking, you know, is it possible that the market could keep going up? Because if the dumb money's coming in, in waves now, is that enough to overwhelm the smart money? Is there a point in time where you just get so much of this stuff? And, and obviously the mechanism by which they're doing it through these calls actually helps give it that little bit of nitro into the fuel tanks and the data is getting worse the estimates are getting worse the you know we've seen the, the now cast um uh gdp number down 48 percent from the atlanta fair gdp now sorry uh and yet and yet and yet this rally is having legs and obviously the media coverage of it is such that it just adds more fuel to the to the retail traders so let's not call them dumb money be pejorative but it adds it, it, it kind of reinforces that belief they have how long do you think this can go on for not in, not in days but in terms of the cycle what does it take to to kill this what what data do we need to see to kill this kind of strange hope that markets seem to have well, you know, I think like we saw in February, we saw with Tesla, you know, was a good example of that. Yeah. You know, 
I think a lot of these traders, you know, through Reddit, they've discovered that if we buy enough calls as a group, we can actually, you know, yeah. manifest our own profits. Uh, Luke Kawa wrote a great piece for, for Bloomberg about this, how they literally feel like they've discovered this magic money tree where if we pool yeah. our, our resources, we push, we buy enough calls, it forces market makers to go buy common and, you know, hedge their short call position that it essentially creates the profits that they're trying, but it doesn't, it can't, you know, go on forever. And, and, and it's very only short term in nature. It only works. I mean, I would imagine they're buying, you know, front month calls, you know, that yeah. are out of the money and, you know, and things that are, you know, very short term in nature. Um, and eventually, like I said, you know, the market is a weighing machine. And so you look at what is the market going to be forced to weigh uh, over the next six months, 12 months. And, uh, you know, you look at earnings estimates and analysts right now expect earnings to come all the way back. Straight next back. Year, yep. Which yep. to me is, you know, that that's possibly what the stock market is trying to discount right now. But I, I think that's literally impossible. There's no way earnings are going to come back. You know, all the top economists, and I don't pay a ton of attention to econ economists, but even Jay Powell is saying it might take till the end of next year for the economy yeah. to, to start, you know, uh, gaining ground. There was a great interview with, um, Reinhard and Rogoff in, in Bloomberg uh, today or yesterday, and they were talking about how typically a recovery takes four or five years uh, out of recession. But they said this feels more like the Great Depression. The Great Depression took 10 years yeah. for the economy to recover. So, you know, Stan Drucker. Well, and, tw and 25 for the Dow to recover, right? I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so Stan Druckenmiller said you need to, you know, basically think about what the market, what the, is the environment going to look like 18 months from now. And to me, 18 months from now, we're going to have possibly record small business bankruptcies and these types of things that are, are going to, you know, hammer demand across the economy. And um, there's just no way the stock market's going to be anywhere near its current. I mean, that's why I'm wearing the bear hat. So there's no, there's no, you know, uh, mistake of, of kind of my assessment of where we are in the stock market right now. I think um, earnings are going much lower and, and, the hopes for recovery um, are, are are hugely optimistic, heroically optimistic. But, but it's interesting, right? Because to your point, you know, Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, Paul Singer, I mean, Einhorn, you've had this who's who, the sort of kind of Mount Rushmore of, of, of investors lining up, talking about how, in Stan's words, the risk reward is the worst he's ever seen in his career. And you know, guys like you and me who've been around these markets for a while, we, we listen to, we've learned that paying attention to what these guys say makes sense. And in the long run, it's a smart thing to do. I mean, you know, Druckmann is arguably the greatest investor, certainly of our generation. Um, and yet it, it, it hasn't mattered. And, and the market has powered ahead despite them. Uh, we've had companies pulling guidance now. They're just, they're just saying that we're going to refuse to give guidance, which, is, which makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, but you can see the way this narrative can be constructed that, well, okay, we, we, we get word of a vaccine today, right? The market's up 750 points plus on the back of that. I mean, it's eight, eight I mean, okay, it's positive, but it's eight trials and, and uh, for antibodies. But at some point, as you said, profits matter, businesses matter. And I, I figured that that would have mattered already when you look at 33 million people losing their jobs with with more to come i just i just feel as though that should already be matching but it isn't and, it, and it's really confusing me yeah you know it's i, I think it, it comes about well i mean I, first of all i would just point out that yeah like you said stan says 
this is the worst risk reward he's ever seen in his career. And on the flip side of that, you have these retail traders are quoted in the you know Financial Times as they, they see today right now as a generational buying opportunity. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that type of a dichotomy that, you know, from the smartest, uh, you know, to the to the most novice. Trader. Well, in fairness, for them, it has been right for their generation. It has been a generational buying opportunity because what have they seen? Right. They have they've only right. seen they the markets seen going 30 percent decline. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. had 35, 30, something like that. And so but I think one of the dynamics that we've seen in the market over the last several years is these volatility targeting strategies, which exacerbate trends in both directions. So I think they really did exacerbate the crash in, in March because once, you know, VIX starts rising, you get all the short covering from the short ball guys, but then, you know, that pushes VIX up and risk parity has to deleverage and, you know, trend following and they all have to, you know, kind of deleverage at the same time. I think we're seeing the opposite of that now where the VIX has been falling, you know, consistently. So you see people start hopping on the short VIX trade. VIX comes down even yeah. more. That forces risk parity back in. You know, CTAs or you know, trend followers are kind of hopping back on the long equities train. And so you have all this price insensitive buying and selling that I think exacerbates these normal trading you know, patterns that we would have um, would probably be a little bit less extreme without these, these types of uh, price insensitive traders that have really taken over the markets. But now that they've become so big, they really do push, you know, prices probably further down and further higher than they probably should go in the short run. And so, yeah, even as the fundamentals are deteriorating, that matters not at all to volatility targeting, shortfall to CTAs, to any of this stuff. So, you know, to me, that helps kind of explain a lot of how these things can kind of continue on longer than they should. And also it plays into the psychology of these retail traders that they start buying and then they, you know, CTAs and whatever kind of through this virtuous cycle of pushing VIX lower through shorting it through, you know, risk parity leveraging up that pushes, you know, VIX down. That's kind of, and then, you know, these buy the dip guys come in and they go, Hey, this is working. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Right. They, they're kind of, you know, by chance, just hopping onto this this trend that's in play, and they think, oh, it's working, great, yeah, let's lever that up, and you know, and, and then it just reverses all of a sudden. So I, I think the guys that are paying attention to where do those uh, those types of traders stand are are some of the guys that have had the best, most success in calling turning points in the last few years. Is just kind of paying attention to where CTAs, where's risk parity, where's volatility targeting. Etc. So, so how much how much effect do you think this this essential? I was going to say it's 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 almost literal now. This this unlimited guarantee of liquidity that the Fed has put out there. Obviously, that that's an enormous tide that is going to lift a lot of boats. But but ultimately, as a lot of people have been talking about in the last week or so, this is going to turn into a solvency crisis quite quickly. I would imagine, right? Um, but but if you if you promise a market like this unlimited liquidity. How far can that carry it, do you think? Because you, know, you can make the argument that it could, given what we've seen in QEs one, two, and three, unlimited liquidity, you know, we will stand there and we will just keep throwing money at this problem. Who knows how far that could carry? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's two, two parts of that. One is, you had, you know, the Fed did learn its lesson from the financial crisis, right? They didn't go, you know, and, and the Treasury really too, Congress didn't go big enough 
early on in the financial crisis to prevent it from kind of spiraling almost to, you know, we're taking down the entire you know, financial system. So I think they did learn their lesson. Like we got to go big. We need shock and awe, you know, financial yeah. shock and awe to try and, and prevent this from going awry. But I think the lesson that was that a lot of traders missed was it wasn't, I mean, the Fed that put a bottom in the stock market in 2009, it was changing the accounting standards. It yes. was when the banks went from being insolvent to solvent overnight because they no longer had to mark to market. Then people finally had the confidence to say, we don't need to worry about JP Morgan going under. We don't need to worry about Wells Fargo going under. You know, all these banks are essentially now solvent. And that's what changed the mindset. Um, and so today, like, I think it's great to point out that this is a solvency crisis, hmm. uh, you know, it, even more so than it was then, because this is not just the banking system. This isn't all of corporate America. I mean, the leveraging up that we've seen across corporate America uh, is, is unlike anything we've ever seen before. The term unprecedented has been way overused, <laughs> but it's yeah. overused because it's the only term we really have to kind of discuss what's going on right now. And so... When you have, you know, maybe an entire sector like the airlines that are, you know, the entire sector could go bankrupt very easily. Um, you know, Boeing should probably go bankrupt. Um, you see, so many companies that I've written about, you look at McDonald's and 3M, they've all just borrowed so much money to buy back stock uh, that the Fed, you know, coming in and lending them more money, what's that going to do? Even if they lend money directly, it just leverages them up, you know, even, even more. Uh, and so I do think that at some point, this comes down to risk appetites. And risk appetites during the financial crisis didn't shift until it was clear that those companies weren't going to be, you know, insolvent anymore. That solvency crisis was essentially averted through an accounting change. I think we're going to get uh, a, a uh, we're going to come to a point here where people are going to realize this is a solvency crisis. Doesn't matter how much money the Fed lends, they're not going to be able to bail out these companies. And I think if the stock market does start to roll over again, despite all of the massive money the Fed's already put in, then people are going to go, "What the hell?" Right? If yeah. that's not enough money to prop up the stock market, what will it take? And that could be really frightening, I think, for, for investors is to realize the Fed has already done so much. They've already pulled out the big guns and still stock prices are now rolling over. That, I think, is where you start seeing risk appetites really, really start to roll over into what you would typically see during a bear market. So how do you, how do you think about this from a, from a tactical and a positioning view? As, as you, you, know, you try and navigate this, how, are, you, are you strictly tactical right now and you know, no long-term look at this market because it's tough to get a read on it? Or are you, are you, you know, long-term lower, but tactically long? How are you playing it? Because it's tough, really tough. I, I, you know, at the, in mid-March, I was raging bullish on a number yes. of you know, small cap value yeah. stocks. There were things that, that traded down to like 10% of their liquidation value. I mean, there were 10 baggers if you were to liquidate them. <laughs> so for me, right, right. I'm looking at some of those things and going, I have to just load up and buy that. And I took off all of my shorts, um, but I'm, I'm back to heavily net short again, just because um, I do think that we haven't you know, even begun to deal with this solvency crisis as an issue. Uh, it's going to last a lot longer than, than I think most people imagine right now. And 
uh, you know, I, I agree with Stan that I, I, you know, and when he says, I hope I'm wrong, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I hope that I'm wrong. I hope the economy recovers. I hope that we find, um, you know, a vaccine so that people can feel confident and go out and shop and, you know, uh, you know, patronize all these different services that are being hit so badly right now. But I just, I don't see it happening. And if it doesn't happen really, really soon, we've already burst this credit bubble um, that's been building for, for 10 years. And once the credit cycle turns, you know, I, I really think we're, we're already kind of headed for a Minsky, another Minsky moment, this time in, you know, the corporate credit markets rather than in the financial system, um, just as a function of uh, all the Ponzi lending, to use a Minsky term, all the Ponzi finance that happened in the last few years, when all that stuff starts to go bad, it creates a, you know, liquidation event and, and, and that kind of spares no asset. And, and I think yeah. that's where we're headed. Well, we'll come on to credit in a second. I definitely want to talk to you on that and pick your brains on it. But but let's just talk about the mindset of, of, of being once again heavily net short in a market that that should roll over, but is is surprisingly resilient. You know, there's been a couple of like last week, it felt like it was cracking again, um, but it kind of held together. We've had a couple of those in the last few weeks. Just talk for people listening about the mindset of, of being short and how you manage those emotions when you're seeing all this negative data, and but the market's not going the way you think. Well, part, part of it is... Um just from a macro risk, I do own things on the long side, and but I don't want any general market risk at all. So how do I manage that? I see these opportunities on the long side and I don't, you know, I've never allowed my macro um, concerns to get in the way of micro opportunities. And so I see these micro opportunities. I want to invest in some of these things I want, but I don't, I have to hedge the, the general market risk in some respects. So some of it is just that, uh, is, is saying, okay, how do I protect myself? if we do roll over and, and break down below the March lows and I don't, you know, um, and, and so part of it is I'm, I'm going to be long short just by nature. Uh, there's, there's a great post, um, or, uh, is Mark Spitznagel's book where he talked about when you're in the top quartile valuation, overlaying a hedging program just enhances your long-term returns right. dramatically. And so a part of me is, is while we're in that top quartile evaluation, I, I just have to hedge in some respect to, to be long short. Um, but from a tactical standpoint too, and this is why I, you know, I don't do many podcasts, but I had Bill Fleckenstein come on right. recently because I wanted to ask a master short seller, okay, how are you handling this right now? And I was really hoping he was going to say, we're getting close to that time where it's time to shoot him in the back. You know, where you, we have this, uh, initial sell off, you get the bear, first bear market rally. And then when it starts to roll over, that's, I mean, a beautiful time to be, to be shorting the stock market. I do think that's where we're really close to that moment. So from a tactical standpoint too, I just think there's a terrific opportunity. I mean, in absolute direct contrast to the retail traders saying this is a generational buying opportunity, yeah. I really believe this is a generational selling opportunity that's coming very soon. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. You know, what, one one place that that has been strong, surprisingly, perhaps, and in other in other areas, perhaps not, is is tech. And I know tech is something that you've spent an awful lot of time focusing on. You've written some fantastic pieces about the tech landscape, the big five. You gave a great presentation. Um, uh, up there in Oregon a couple of years ago, which was which is stupendous. But talk a little bit about the tech landscape, how you're looking at the FANG stocks, where we are in that, because a lot of people obviously are, are heavily up to their necks in those puppies. 
Yeah, well, you know, I've been relatively bearish on the FANG stocks for, I think that was, was that late 17? Uh, yeah. When I gave that yeah, at that. Dave's conference here in Oregon. Um, it's like the only, con- I don't go to conferences, so, but because it was Dave, uh, he asked me to do it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the FANG stocks were just coming off a huge run. I think Netflix in the prior two years was up 400%. On average, those stocks were up 100% per year over the last year or two or something like that prior. Since then, over the, la- over the last two years, um, you know, they've been up 20% total as a group. Um, and, you know, I've, since I've been kind of bearish on the fangs, I've contrasted that with what I call the bank stocks, which are the big gold yeah. miners, which have done, you know, much, much better than the fang stocks. But I think the fang stocks specifically right now, um, Facebook and Google are advertising companies. And their sales growth is expected to go to zero this quarter or lower. And so I think investors in Facebook and, and Alphabet are going to soon find out what it's like to own a growth stock when it stops growing. And right. typically what happens is the valuation has to change dramatically. Um, and then Netflix and Amazon have obviously benefited a great deal from, from coronavirus and you know, more people hopping on Netflix and, and using Amazon. But Amazon, I mean, one of the problems with all of these stocks is they uh, investors are valuing them typically based on price to free cash flow, and I mean I'm going to get in a little kind of accounting jargon here, but uh, what they like about price to free cash flow is in earnings since 2005 these companies have had to expense um, option grants you know out of their earnings and that reduces their earnings per share. So. Uh, that uh, expense, though, is kicked back into cash flow from operations, which really doesn't make a ton of sense, I yeah. don't think. There was a great paper on this. And so people, you know, these investors are looking at, if they're looking at valuation measure at all, it's price to free cash flow. And, and that's because it adds back that expense, which is a huge expense for a lot of these yeah. companies. Yeah. Um, and if you don't add that back in their price to free, Amazon trades 150 times price to free cash flow which is essentially the same that Cisco did in March of 2000. Go back and look at what Cisco did after March of 2000. It's, you know, you're going to haunt your nightmares. Um, Amazon trades essentially the same, same valuation today. And then if you try and, you know, value Netflix on price to free cash flow, I mean, how do you price, you know, something on negative 3 billion a year is what, you know, the run rate right now. And so I do think, if there's one thing I've learned from my experience in bear markets is that these types of valuations don't, don't survive a bear market. Um, you know, you see, like I said, Cisco went down 90% plus and even the thesis was correct, right? Cisco became the backbone of the internet. Right. Didn't stop the stock, the stock price from going down 90%. So Amazon is because is taking over retail. They're owning the cloud. They're doing all these things, but the valuation has to make sense. And let's say they, you know, grow 20 times. Let's say you pay 30 times, you know, free cash flow for this thing. Well, the stock price can still go down 60, 75% from where it is today very easily. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the, the going forward, the FANG stocks uh, are, are going to have, um, you know, some serious headwinds, uh, not just in terms of they are economically sensitive, especially Facebook and Alphabet, but also just the valuations have gotten so crazy uh, that as, as um, I think this bear market progresses, it's going to eventually hit these, these favorites. It always, it always does. Well, it was interesting listening to the Netflix conference call, the most recent one, you know, that even they had, they had uh, Reed Hastings at the CFO uh, and I forget who else there was 
some one of the other big names there was on the call and all of them were basically talking about how listen calm down we've pulled a lot of demand forward with this lockdown and they said we don't think we're going to reach these numbers next quarter it kind of mattered for a bit and then it didn't again and people are the lockdown's going on longer so we should buy netflix still i mean it's, it's amazing to me it is. And it's, and it's uh, you know, a lot of these, who knows, maybe, you know, a lot of the Reddit traders said, hey, all right, we did Tesla, we did, let's do Netflix, right? right? Yeah. You know? yeah, Netflix maybe. is one of the lower market cap stocks, you know, relative to the rest of the things. It's probably easier to push up yeah. by buying a lot of call options. So, I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm just speculating. But certainly uh, there's those kind of, um, you know, common knowledge type of, of trades like, wow, Amazon and Netflix are doing great. Why are they hitting new highs? Because these retail traders are saying, wow, who's benefiting from coronavirus? Let's buy those stocks. And, and you know, the thing I think about is, is Howard Marks is one of my favorite writers, commentators. Yeah. Um, he talks about, you know, the only way to real, really make money in the markets is to have, you know, a non-consensus view and be right. Yeah. I think a lot of these investors don't understand is if you have the consensus view, you can be right and still lose money. Um, and, and I think that's what, you know, a lot of these novice traders are going to learn is that, yeah, Netflix might do awesome, you know, as, as a, you know, kind of a, a result of lockdowns and all these things. You might be right on your thesis, but you paid the wrong price. So, you know, I, that's just how bear markets work. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about the, the, the bank stocks. So let, let's talk about those because, um, you know, I, I, I've been a fan of gold for a long time. I, I will never call myself a gold bug, um, but I've been a fan of it for a long time. I understand its place in the portfolio. But, you know, looking at the, the gold mining stocks now, um, they, you know, they, 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 they look great from just about every angle. They look great on a technical perspective. They look I mean, phenomenal given the oil price. They look great. Uh, looking at what the Fed's doing, I mean, there, it's tough to come up with a with a with a kind of facet of the environment we're in now that isn't positive for gold stocks, and yet still, um, they're not owned, they're not loved. You know, there's been some action and they're performing better, but we haven't seen any interest in those. So, to talk a little bit about your your bank stocks and and what you make of the gold miners, and so. Yeah, so I mean, it was almost exactly two years ago, I wrote about how the bank stocks were gonna make the FANG stocks look tame. And yeah. it took until just the last few months for that trade to actually play out. I think they're probably on equal footing for a long time. And recently yeah. the gold stocks kind of started screaming higher uh, and FANG stocks, you know, not so much. Um, I, two years ago, um, and even, you know, back in 2015, 16, uh, these stocks were so out of favor and so, I mean, so incredibly cheap. You look at almost any valuation measure and their revenue growth was kind of flattening out because gold prices were flattening out. And at the same time, valuations were the cheapest these stocks had been in 25, 30 years plus. I mean, they were so incredibly undervalued. So you, 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 you marry that improving fundamentals, uh, you know, gold prices, and we should talk about the fundamentals that kind of drive gold prices too, but um, you know, improving gold prices paired with really, really cheap valuations. And that's how these stocks have just kind of screamed higher recently. Um, I do think they're probably about fairly valued right now if gold, gold doesn't move any higher. But I mean, I, I've, longer term, I'm very bullish. Gold's going to continue moving higher. So these stocks will, you know, that will be a, you know, a, a continued tailwind for them. But in terms of the gold price, I think that the, the, the main thing that makes me longer term bullish is the, the massive amount of, uh, you know, the, the fiscal spending that we're mm -hmm. seeing. The, the deficit, um, to me, 
it's probably the, the number one driver of the dollar over longer periods of time is the fiscal deficit. And you see, I think people are talking about we could have an 18, 20% deficit to GDP this year, uh, which is absolutely massive and would be very, very bearish for the dollar. If, if I mean, I, I think that's probably a, a, inaccurate, if not, you know, understated. Um, uh, Pelosi and, you know, Democrats are talking about $3 trillion more spending. If if we see cases, COVID cases pick up again, they're going to get that three trillion passed. Yeah. And I even saw, I think it was in the Atlantic today, it's going to take 10 trillion of spending to prevent another Great Depression. And I don't doubt with both partisan, you know, bipartisan support for MMT right now that we, we see, we don't see 10 trillion worth of spending. So that is, is very bearish longer term for the dollar, which is very, very bullish for, for the gold price. Shorter term though, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious towards gold simply because I, I do think one of the drivers for gold over the short term has been interest rates falling faster than inflation. And so real interest rates have gone deeply negative. And that's always very, very bullish for gold. You see gold tracks, you know, uh, real interest rates pretty closely. If you look at the year over year change in gold, year over year change in interest in, in real interest rates. I think what we're seeing now, we just saw the largest collapse in core CPI on record. Yeah. And there's a potential now in the short run, just over the next few months, for inflation to actually fall faster than interest rates, which would be a short-term headwind for gold prices, kind of open a window for a corrective period for gold prices. Um, and so I, I, I'm a little bit cautious towards the miners themselves too, for that reason right now, just um, also I have, I have a, a, you know, kind of sharp eyed reader who draw, drew my attention. I was writing all this stuff about Robinhood. He said, have you checked out Robinhood traders positions in, in uh, Nugget and JNUG? And um, these have become, I mean, they've gone yeah. from like three, 4,000 accounts holding Nugget to 20,000 accounts holding Nugget right now. And so, uh, a lot of these guys, I mean, it's not nearly as crazy as you see them buying AT and or, uh, you know, GE and Ford and the airlines yeah. and stuff like that, which are crazy bets in and of themselves in the midst of a pandemic. But there's a lot of popular, you know, a lot of this new money is flowing into the, has flown into the gold miners too. So I think there's, there's a, there's a potential, I think over the next few months, if the stock market rolls over again, it could kind of pull gold prices down, especially if we see inflation fall faster than interest rates over the next couple of months. So I'm kind of short-term cautious towards gold, but longer term, um, you know, I, I would never pare down my core position in gold right now because it's so easy to get, yeah. uh, you know, kicked off of, uh, of, of, of a bull market. And I do think we're in, we're only in the middle stages of a bull market. It's going to see gold go to several thousand dollars an ounce. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that, but it's interesting because I think I think the big mistake that that most people make when they get in, interested in gold and silver is just becoming attached to that and believing it can only go in one way, and then questioning every time it goes down. And you know, you you're very good at being balanced about that. Flex very good at it, and 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 guys like you just you maintain that kind of that balance and that willingness to have different time frames in the position. And it's so important for people to understand, right? To be short term cautious and long term bullish. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, you know, and that's why I try and make, I, I even hesitate to talk about my short-term opinion about it because I don't want people to go, oh, great. Well, I'm going to sell all my gold, you know, and, and, and try and time it, you know, purchase. I, like I said, I would never sell my core gold holdings right now because like I said, it's so easy to get kind of bucked off of a, of a, of a gold bull market and lose your position. And then, you know, several hundred dollars higher, you know, be forced to, you know, do I buy it back here? You know, what yeah. do I do now? Because I mean, 
as much as I think we we could get a correction, it just might not happen. I mean, there's this you see that in bull markets all the time. If you've been doing that in the stock market for the last ten years, right? I mean, waiting for a twenty five percent correction to to buy stocks, you never got your chance, and that could be true with this gold bull market right now too. How, how do you think about? Um the the kind of social fabric and the pressure that's under and how that boils into all this. Obviously, we're, we're, we're coming up on an election. It's incredibly polarized. How how much weight do you give that, particularly in an election year? How important is it? And and is have you kind of raised your mental allocation to, to social uh, strife at the moment? Yeah, I think there's there's two really big things. I think of in terms of that, and it's, it just relates back to markets. One is um, you mentioned about you know the Fed and their ability to prop up asset prices. The Fed is already, I think, coming under tremendous pressure, uh, and they have just in the last couple of years about exacerbating wealth inequality. I don't think you can lay all of the wealth inequality issue at the feet of the Fed, but it's incredibly disingenuous for Janet Yellen and you know Ben Bernanke and to say that we're trying to create a wealth effect, but we're having no effect on wealth inequality, right? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. So I do think you see in article, you know, articles, um, a lot of popular ones, uh, you know, that's one of the things I pay attention to in my Twitter feed, or what are the popular articles that resonate with mm -hmm. people? Some of the most popular things that resonate right now are the ones that show this dichotomy between Main Street and Wall Street. Now, Wall Street is doing fine because the Fed is coming and bailing out speculators and their monetary tools are super effective in the financial markets. But on the you know, fiscal side, in terms of helping out Main Street, you know, we have stock prices near all-time highs, almost record high valuations that were only seen in 1929, 2000, and today. And you have bread lines again, essentially, where people are you know, waiting in line at food banks. And Eventually, this is going to, I mean, I think it's already catching up with the Fed, where the Fed is, you know, um, going to have to start being very, very careful about, uh, I guess, backing speculators at the expense of, of you know, everyday people. And, and so I, I do think at some point, there's going to be a major backlash um, towards policies that, that you know, uh, protect the wealthy, uh, even while, you know, 40% of people who make under 40,000 are jobless. And, and so I, I do think that's already coming to a head. The other side of that is I do think one of the other bubbles, you know, we've talked about the, the everything bubble and yeah. it's not just stocks. It's not bonds, just bonds, corporate bonds. It's one of the other bubbles that's kind of behind this. I think equity bubble is this corporate profits margins bubble. We've seen profit margins soar, corporate profits uh, as a percentage of GDP soar to absolute record highs. Um, and labor share of income go down to record lows. And that's just totally unsustainable. And I think we're, I mean, Paul Tudor Jones has spent a good amount of time yep. talking about this, that we, and, and there was all that big thing, you know, uh, last year, um, uh, the business roundtable made a point of saying we're moving away from shareholder first capitalism to stakeholder first capitalism. And a lot of it was just kind of just words with a lot, you know, very little backing it. But I do think we're going to see politics generally shift in that direction, kind of reversing what we saw Reagan do from the 80s, which, you know, let's let's, uh, you know, put corporations, you know, loosen the rules for reg regulations and all these things that, that boost corporate profits and and union busting, whatever, we're going to see 
we're, we're already seeing a trend kind of back towards unions, unionizing. Um, I think, you know, we might see that in, you know, the Amazon warehouse workers, uh, Google, you know, employees have tried to unionize. And so I think we're going to start to see this larger, larger shift as a product of wealth inequality and, and the, the pain and frustration that people are feeling about this. They're going to start voting for politicians that are going to push labor in fair of capital yeah. uh, over the next. I think that's a longer term trend. We're seeing that with deglobalization and kind of more uh, policies uh, about, you know, uh, nationalistic trade policies and these types of things that are all kind of in some way related to this this larger issue. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So there's a, there's a bunch of questions coming in. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try and get to some of those uh, in, in the next 15, 20 minutes. But uh, there's, there's half a dozen in there about looking for your views on Bitcoin. Now, you're not someone who I mentally associate with Bitcoin. And you, you know, you, you're, you're kind of like me. You're an interested observer, but not certainly not uh, any kind of zealot anyway. What, what do you? What's your take on Bitcoin? You know, my my take on Bitcoin is I agree with everything, every argument that is made about Bitcoin, except that it's a store of value. I do not believe Bitcoin is a store of value. And so that's where it stops for me. I, I do agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a lot in common between, you know, people who are buying gold as an alternative currency to kind of protect their, you know, uh, capital against fiat debasement and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the big, a lot of Bitcoiners have the same exact reasoning for doing what they're doing. Um, but I think we've seen, you know, with Bitcoin, with the forks and you know, different things, you've seen that, I mean, you can create your own coins out of thin air. It, it, to me, it's not its not at all a store of value. And I've tried to really understand it. I've talked to guys like Steve Bregman and, um, you know, I've had, uh, you know, uh, Eric uh, Townsend, I'm, you know, on my podcast to talk about it. And I really do understand where the enthusiasm for Bitcoin is coming from, but I don't agree with the end conclusion that this is this is the effective way to protect your capital. And I really don't even know if these guys like Paul Tudor Jones and you know Steve Bregman, who are buying Bitcoin, even really believe it themselves. I think a lot of these guys do think that maybe this is potentially the next big bubble asset class, and I want to ride this bubble. Um, and, and in that case, you don't even need to be right on the thesis. It could just right. be yeah. enthusiasm for the asset could push it a lot higher. But for me, I have to have a fundamental belief that it is a true store of value for, for the thesis to work for me. And I, don't, I just don't believe them. Well, there's a couple of other questions, which kind of, for me, when I read them, it kind of, it, it screams that we are nearing the end of a cycle. And that, you know, two questions. One about uh, will fundamentals ever matter again? And that's a question you hear a lot of people asking. And ten, generally, when that question tends to get asked, it means the fundamentals are about to matter an awful lot again. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And also the the, the seeming lack of outrage, the, the fact that there doesn't seem to be anyone complaining about Fed interference, either in markets or, or with the amount of money they're pulling out of thin air. So where do you factor those into your assessment of, of conditions? Well, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I've tried to do my part in educating. I, I do really feel bad for especially the millennial generation. My kids are Gen Y. Um, I, I feel I feel really bad for them, and, I, and especially millennials, because I think Bloomberg got a great quote recently. I, I can't remember the article, but they said that millennials are now essentially facing two once in a generation crises, you know, right as yeah. they come into the labor yeah. force. You have the financial crisis, which we were told is the worst thing since the Great Depression. And, and now we're essentially having another Great Depression. And so 
I do think, you know, while there might not be as much understanding and outcry right now, I do think people will ask, you know, later on and maybe a couple of years after this recession has ended, how the hell did we end up in this place where we had a horrible financial crisis and only, you know, 10 years later, we had another Great Depression. And uh, the only conclusion you can come to is that the, the Fed created both of these bubbles. Um, you know, the, as so many you know, people have pointed out, um, they're not just the firefighter, they're the arsonist in the first yeah. place. And so I, I do think that will become, that narrative will become common knowledge over time. And millennials, and, and I mean, this is the third central bank that we've had. They've, the other two failed for, yeah. you know, similar reasons. And so this one is going to fail also. Um, it's at least going to have its power dramatically reined in. My personal opinion is the Fed should be the lender of, the la of last resort. That's what it was intended to be. It's the only function uh, it should serve is uh, you have solvent institutions that are you know, facing a run. And, okay, we'll capitalize you until this run is over. Period. End of story. We're not going to yeah. interest rates. We're not going to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, that serves a purpose. And that was why America agreed to have a central bank again for the third time was because we needed that function. We couldn't ask JP Morgan to personally do it again. And so we needed a, you know, a government run function. And uh, it's just gotten, you know, with the dual mandate, it's become uh, just a bastardization of, of what it was intended to be. Now, you, you know, interesting you bring up J.P. Morgan personally back in the market, which of course he did um, way back in the 1920s. But Warren Buffett, you know, he, we had this recent uh, ASM and obviously we did, it, was, it was interesting because, you know, like sport, it was stripped of the theatre, it was stripped of the crowd, it was stripped of the adulation. And for me, it took on a very different look and feel, just, uh, you know, the two of them sitting there taking the questions and talking. And you know, Buffett is someone who has played that J.P. Morgan role, particularly in 08 when he stepped in with you know, Mars and he stepped in with Goldman. Okay, sweetheart deals, but listen, he had the cash and he held all the cards at that point. This time around, very different. He he hasn't he's not put his hand in his pocket. He's got 140 odd billion dollars in cash sitting on his uh, in the bank. What do you take of the lack of any reaction from Buffett? What does that What does that tell you? Well, I think it's. It's more of a, you know, I've seen a lot of my value investing investor friends say, isn't it amazing that, you know, Buffett and, and company, his you know, portfolio managers didn't find anything to buy in March. And I don't think it was a micro decision. I think that probably if you were just a portfolio manager, you found cheap stocks, things you could buy. I think it's entirely a macro decision for two reasons. One is, uh, and Buffett said this himself, it's very, very hard to analyze a business when you don't know what the economic environment is going to look like right. over the next few years. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, that people don't want to talk about is this, we've never developed a, a vaccine for coronavirus before. There's a possibility that you can't develop a, a vaccine for this and that coronavirus, God forbid, will be with us for a long period of time. Chinese scientists, you know, came out and said, we will be dealing with coronavirus for the next few years. Um, that we're going to have to just figure, find a way to, to live with it. And if that's the case, then what does that mean for uh, commercial real estate? You know, what does that mean for huge sectors of the economy could become, will become distressed if, if there isn't a solution for the coronavirus found? And so I think part of that is macro. I think the other part for him specifically that's macro is, uh, you know, the coronavirus, even though they're not... Um, a lot of these commercial policies uh, and things 
were written to exclude a pandemic, um, the, the liabilities Lloyd's came out and said that uh, insurance liabilities for this cycle would be bigger than any other catastrophe yeah. we've seen in history before. Berkshire Hathaway is an insurance company. So I think he's also trying to get a handle on what do our liabilities look like? And we have, we have an obligation to survive first, survive this pandemic first as a financial institution, as an insurance provider first, and then take advantage of opportunity second. And I, you know, I, I think you have to applaud him for that. But I think also people should, should recognize that if Warren Buffett sees this as that big of a, uh, you know, a question mark, unknown threat to his em- financial empire's survivability, then what does that mean for the rest of corporate America? So I, I do think yeah. it's, it's a more of a macro call than anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. It's, it's a great point. And I mean, it, I, he, he struck such a different chord at this meeting. He was talking about companies going bankrupt. It wasn't the kind of sunshine and rainbows that you normally get from a man whose mantra has been, you know, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy, right? It's, it's yeah. very different. I'm tr- well, trying to get to some of the- It's hard to argue that, that people are being uh, fearful right now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I, I just want to get to try to wrap some of the other questions into as neat packages as I can before yeah. in the last 10 minutes we've got left. Um, the, the Euro and Europe, let's, let's jump across there. Your, your take on that, obviously, you, you, we understand now your view on the dollar. Um, but obviously, we've got a whole bunch of worthless currencies out there, all kind of circling the drain together. So, you know, talk me a little bit about your views on the euro, the yen, some of these other supposedly safe haven currencies. Well, I look at, you know, a couple of things to form a long term view of the dollar. Uh, you know, one I mentioned before, what is the deficit and the fiscal deficit is is a, is the major driver of the dollar. But I also look at valuation. You know, I'm, I'm a value guy. I'm a value investor. And so I look at things like purchasing power parity. The Big Mac index is kind of shorthand for that. And the dollar is overvalued compared to almost every other currency on the planet. Um, they're all relatively undervalued, which is, you know, stock markets overseas are also relatively undervalued relative to the U.S. too. So I think that, um, you know, investors who are focusing only on dollar-based assets, only on U.S. stocks, are probably making a, a, a double mistake right now. They're buying something that's overvalued, but also in an overvalued currency. So, uh, you know, longer term, I do think uh, that the the overvaluation of the dollar right now has been precipitated by the fact that there's negative interest rates in Japan and Europe. And so people, you know, have kind of pushed the value of the dollar up because we do want some kind of a nominal return. Um, but there's talk about the Fed going negative. If the Fed goes negative, at the same time that we have a 20% deficit to, to GDP, what's going to hold the dollar up? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially when they're monetizing debt, so rapidly. I think the Fed has been more aggressive with its monetization than any other central bank on the planet by far in the last few months. And so, you know, you look at that relative, um, you know, uh, those relative attributes. And to me, it's it's very negative for the dollar. So what, what, where do you stand? Our mutual friend, um, uh, Brent Johnson's famous milkshake theory. You know, do, do, you, do you subscribe to that? I mean, for me, I, I totally get what he's saying. And I can see that it's plausible and and God love him. He's incredibly confident in it. And as, as anyone that follows his Twitter feed will be able to testify to. But I just, I don't know, there's something about it that tells me it's not going to get that far out of hand. So I like Brent and he's a super smart guy. I really enjoyed chatting with him at, at um, you know, Dave's conference a couple of years ago. Um, and I need to catch up with him again. But for me, I have to, I have to come back to some sort of fundamentals. Like I, like talk, I talked about, I think the fundamental drivers for gold 
are, um, you know, the fiscal situation and real interest rates and, and those types of things. For me, I have to have a fundamental case. I have to start with a fundamental case. It's, it's a combination of fundamental sentiment and technicals. And so the technicals and sentiment don't necessarily agree with fundamentals right now for the dollar. I do think the dollar could, could shoot higher in the short run, especially as kind of a safe haven trade if stocks, you know, do roll over and, and, and these types of things. But for me, I can't just abandon those views that the dollar, uh, those facts that the dollar's right. overvalued and that the fiscal situation is going to be uh, a huge anchor around the neck of the dollar over the next few years. So one place we haven't touched upon um, is China. Um, obviously, it matters. Uh, it seems to matter less at the moment because everybody's just so inwardly focused on, on their own markets. What, what's your take on, on the situation in China? Obviously, their economy completely collapsing, although the, the remarkable rebounds we see in some of the numbers are uh, almost entertaining to watch. But the, you know, the, the trade tension and the damage done to their economy, how big a deal is that? And what do you see happening in China? Well, I mean, right, everybody has an opinion on China. I think it's very, I've seen a lot of really, really smart people be really wrong on China. And I, you know, I'm the first to admit I, I'm wrong on tons of stuff all the time, but I, I do think making kind of a macro call on, on China is, is probably well above my pay grade. Not probably, I know it is. <laughs> so I'm not gonna try and make, make a macro call there. Um, but I will say that emerging markets generally, uh, equities markets, are relatively uh, as, as cheap as they've almost ever been. Uh, and, you know, China makes up about 50% of any emerging markets index. And so for me, if I'm looking at, I want to own equities somewhere around the world. I got to own equities somewhere around the world. Look at the Chinese equity market. It's, you know, it's held up relatively well compared to, well, I mean, before the, it didn't crash as hard as ours and came yeah. back quicker. Yeah. Um, uh, now that ours is rebounded, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, Trump does, is, uh, Trump and Xi have something to kind of compare. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so I, I do think, uh, while I don't have a macro opinion on China, I do think because emerging markets equities are so cheap that it's pricing in a lot of negativity already, unlike what the situation we have here, where valuations are record highs, we're pricing in, you know, uh, a, a rapid recovery um, and, um, you know, all good things, essentially. Uh, and if all good things don't materialize for U.S., markets, it's going to lead to significant price declines. If things aren't as bad as emerging markets are pricing in, then you can make it a good deal of money. So to me, it comes back to the valuation. I do think emerging is generally uh, is generally very cheap right now. So it's uh, especially attractive relative to the rest of the world. So two more questions, and then I'm going to let you go. Just just as, as you stand here today, given the rally we've seen, um, what are you looking at? What what data points are you looking for? What kind of signals are you looking for? Is there anything you're paying particular attention to waiting to see if this cracks or that strengthens? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, uh, I, I look at a variety of things, fundamental sentiment, technicals. Fundamentals are kind of a longer term thing, but when I look at sentiment and technical, sentiment is off the charts bullish for equities yeah. right now. To me, that's a terrific contrary indicator. Technically, I'll look to a couple different things. I think, you know, like my friend uh, Tommy Thornton has pointed out, we're about two days away from a DeMarc sell signal on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100. To me, those exhaustion signals have worked really well in the daily charts over the last you know, year to date. 
Um, you know, we had a we had a sell signal right before markets reversed hard, and we had a we had a nine buy setup, and markets reversed to the upside. We're very close to another sell signal there. But one of the other things that I look at really carefully too, and this was inspired by a Stan Druckenmiller interview, is he looks at the relative performance of economically sensitive sectors, and so you look at the relative performance of transports, retail, metals and mining, these banks, financials. You look at the relative performance of these, it's all hitting new multi-decade yeah. lows. That's not what you want to see uh, at, a bear, uh, you know, um, at a bear market low, you know, to get bullish. Uh, usually you see those kinds of sectors uh, at, at a sustainable low. Those are the ones leading you out. Uh, yeah. and, and right now, you look at banks, you look at um, transports, and, and these things just look so fugly right now that to me it's a, a clear message that this is a bear market rally and we're very close to, to rolling over. All right, so the last question which someone asked right at the beginning of this, and I've, I've saved this last because I'm always interested too. Um, reading material, any, any interesting books you've read, anything that you've that you got in your nightstand? Because I know you're a reader and I'm always looking for good tips too. So whoever sent that question in at the beginning, thank you for that. Yeah, you know, one of the, the books I went back, uh, I read The Great Crash 1929. There's a lot of parallels. John Kenneth Galbraith, great quotes uh, in that, um, that I think are instructive for what we're seeing, what we have seen over the last few months. But lately, I'm mostly just reading fiction because I need to just take my, minds off, my mind off of, you know, all, all the, the stuff that's going on. You read all the economics and the news and whatever, and I just need something to help me take my mind off it and fall asleep, so... Yeah, no, I, I've done the same. I reread 1984, uh, which is, if anyone hasn't read it or they haven't read it for a long time, reread it. It's, it's, it's remarkably good to read right now. Yeah. Uh, and I also read, um, I also read uh, a book called A Gentleman in Moscow, which I don't know if you've read that, by a guy called Amor Towles, which is, it, it's just such a beautifully written book. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. If Amazon is still working, I'll send you a copy. Awesome. But look, Jesse, um, listen, thanks, buddy. I, I really appreciate you giving up an hour of your time. Um, it, it's great to catch up. It's been way too long. Hopefully we can do it in person again soon. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Grant. You are the, uh, the best at what you do, and so it's an honor to, to spend this time with you. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's very kind. It's, it's, it's slightly hyperbolic, I'm afraid. But listen, thanks, bud. Take care of yourself and uh, get a shave at some point, will you? <laughs> I'll get it. All right, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. Well, my thanks to all of you for um, for joining Jesse and I today. Um, uh, all that remains is just to let you know, for those of you that, that weren't familiar with Jesse before this, you'll find out more about what he does uh, at the Felder Report. Um, it's a fantastic piece of research that's been invaluable for me. Uh, you also find him on Twitter at Jesse Feld. I really could have got him to do this for you, couldn't I? And it would have been so way much way better. Um, he also has a fantastic podcast called Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Um, when Jesse will completely lay waste to that theory that I'm the best at what I do because he his podcasts are tremendous. Um, the next one of these is going to be a completely different conversation. Peter Zion, who's um, a, a great guy, a, fanas a, a fantastic uh, geopolitical strategist. And he's written a superb book called Disunited Nations, which he sent me a copy of uh, a few months ago. And I've read it twice already, and it's it's covered in yellow highlighter because there was, I took so much away from it. So we'll talk about China, we'll talk about geopolitics. David Rosenberg's gonna join me. I'm really excited about that. He's um, He's been, to my mind, by far and away the best economist anywhere near Wall Street for, for the last couple of decades. So I'm looking forward to talking to Rosie. Diego Perea is gonna join us from Europe to talk about anti-bubbles. 
Um, we'll talk about gold. We'll talk about oil. Um, Diego, another just another brilliant, brilliant mind. To finish things off, uh, my good friend Neil Howe is going to join us to talk about uh, more about demographics, about the social pressures, uh, and where we stand in the fourth turning. So again, my thanks to all of you for joining me. Thank you. <laughs>